Right. Like why do the, why can people be thin on keto and the Chinese can be thin just eating like 80, 90% of calories is white rice or, or sweet potatoes or wheat, depending on where you live in China. But you know, there's gotta be some unifying mechanisms that are making it all work because like a court compared to Americans, the Chinese are definitely overeating. And again, I'm going to reiterate the statement from the, you know, the Cornell study, which is the least active Chinese, i.e. probably, you know, retirees, um, et cetera, that aren't doing hard work, whatever, homebodies, the least active Chinese ate 30% more calories uh, than Americans and weighed 20% less, you know? So that's like by American standards, the Chinese traditional Chinese overeat. And so, you know, how can you then come back to Americans and say, well, you're fat because you're overeating. It's like, well, what the starch eating people actually eat more than we do. Welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, editor-in-chief of the Unst.com, Bill's manager, and French cuisine enthusiast, which is why I'm especially stoked on today's episode. Bill's guest this week is author, scientist, and fellow croissant enthusiast, Brad Marshall. As you know, Bill's become obsessed with croissants during the pandemic, which led him to the croissant diet, originated by Mr. Marshall. This is the most scientifically dense episode we've ever released, and it's so interesting, especially for someone like myself, who could stand to lose a few pounds? Should I be pronouncing it croissant? Probably, but I'm not pretentious, so get off my ass. Thanks to everyone who's been rating the show and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts and other assorted podcatchers. It really helps people find the show. Please join the Patreon to get early access to episodes, bonus content, and full video of every podcast. We appreciate everyone who supports the show that way. It's actually Bandcamp Day today as I'm recording this, so hurry on over to Mr. Bill's page, as well as that of the Beleagle Beats Empire to put some money in some starving artist pockets. I also have some show announcements. I know, it's crazy. Bill plays the Unce Festival in early June, then there's Infrasound the following week. Red Rocks with Ganja White Knight is happening in November, but I have a shit ton of dates to announce in the interim. But uh, let's stair-step our way back into this. We'll ease people back into the concept of live music a bit at a time. Finally, head over to MrBillsTunes.com to sign up to become a hardcore Abletoneer. Lots of cool changes happening to the site, so make sure you're up to speed. All right, enjoy Bill's chat with Brad Marshall. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Well, man, thanks for thanks for joining me and thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, so my the reason I found out about you is my partner who's um getting massively into diet right now, and I've sort of like always half half been into like trying out different diets and whatnot. Not that I'm like some sort of you know, fitness freak or anything. I'm a musician, right? So like my podcast, I primarily uh, interview like DJs and like electronic music producers and stuff. Like for instance, I've had like Dead Mouse on here before, and I you know I. I 
I talk to software developers a lot and stuff like that. Um, so you're the first actual, uh, like sort of biology person I've ever had on. Um, but yeah, cool. I, I read, uh, or I, yeah, I looked at the article, um, about the croissant diet and I was like, oh man, I got to talk to this guy. <laughs> this is like the funniest shit I've ever read. <laughs> and then I like listened to some podcasts that you did and, and was like, oh wow, there's actually like quite a bit of like, you know, intense science behind this that actually apparently works. Um, so I guess like a good sure. to start might be, um, to just like introduce yourself and, you know, like explain who you are and why you know the things that you know and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Sure. Yeah. And, and I don't know, you know, uh, we probably don't want to get too, we probably don't want to get too deep in the weeds on the science. Um, I mean, I don't know what, what level of depth you want to go through that stuff for. We, we can, um, we might just have to go through it slowly. Cause I like, if you start you know saying a lot of big words, I might be like, well, what the hell is that? Yeah. So my, my name is Red Marshall and, um, I write the blog fire in a bottle. And so I have a background in genetics at Cornell and, um, uh, molecular biology really. And I, um, I've done sort of keto dieting on and off for years. Um, I read the original Atkins book back in 2003 and, and I've sort of, you know, that worked really well for me when I was like in my twenties, you know, I would do keto and I could lose a bunch of weight and I've always struggled with my weight. And, um, but I'm also a chef and I went to the French culinary Institute and I'm kind of a, a food historian. So I, I know, I know a lot about food. That's, that's really my, my passion in addition to being a biologist. And so one of the things I've always noticed is that, um, you know, if you look at like, uh, photos of Paris from 1960, everyone's very slim. And if you look at, uh, people in upstate New York in 1950, 1960, and like New York city in 1960, everyone's very slim. Right. And these are like, like I could, there's great photos from like Yankees games back in the day. And everyone is like stick thin. And, and, and if you look at the food records of the time, you know, they were all eating basically flour and potatoes and butter and milk. Um, and they were staying really thin and that, and those are the things that they, you know, they tell us that we shouldn't do is eat, you know, eat lots of flour, you know, bread and butter, right. That's, that's supposed to make you fat. And it, but, but if you look historically, it didn't. But do you think that that could have also been somewhat related to maybe just lifestyle and also like just calorie intake? Cause you know, they would have. So, so that's what, that's what everyone wants to point to when I say that. But, but the fact is, you know, a, a banker in New York city in 1960 would have, um, taken the, you know, taken a cab to work gone up the elevator to his office and sat at his desk all day. And then, you know, gone down the elevator and taken a cab back home. And, um, you know, in the 1960s, like literally no one jogged, like jogging was, if you jogged, you were a very fringe weirdo. Like people didn't exercise then it wasn't a thing. Like there was a Senator who was famously arrested in the early 1970s, because he was jogging and it was considered suspicious behavior. And so they arrested him. Um, you know, this was a United States Senator or maybe it was a Congress person, but either way. So, so, you know, people weren't exercising in the sixties and they were eating, they weren't, you know, they got the people in New York city got to back and forth from work the same way we do now. And, um, you know, and they were like, 
just incredibly lean. And so something changed in there. And so anyway, I'm, I'm going to leave that there for a second and, and jump off to another thing. Um, so I have, you know, I've struggled with weight my whole life and I gained a lot of weight, um, you know, and I, I weighed myself as people do right on like new year's day of like, uh, 20, 2019, I guess it was. And I was, you know, I had gained a lot of weight. Um, I had been, like I say, I've done keto on and off, but I was super busy and I was running a restaurant and all this stuff. And I just wasn't, didn't have the time to take care of myself. I put on a lot of weight and I said, okay, I got to get on top of this. And I started doing keto and it just wasn't effective in my forties. Like it was when I was 25, you know? Damn. So you were doing keto for like 15 years. Like you, you, you were doing keto like 15 years ago. On and off (laughs) for like two, two years at a time. And then I wouldn't for five years. And then, you know, I do it again. And you're like way ahead of the curve on like this whole keto trend though. Well, you know, the Atkins diet, um, book was hugely popular right around in the early two thousands, you know, everybody was doing Atkins back then. And so it wasn't that, um, you know, I wasn't really that far ahead of the curve. In fact, my parents did it before I did. And that's how I found out about it is my parents told me about it. And I was like, Oh, that's, you know, and at the time that was really the idea that you could just eat, you know, saturated fat and steak and lose weight and things were like kind of mind blowing. Right. And so Um, and so anyway, fast forward to now. And so I I wanted to learn more about, you know, the science behind all this works. And there's a blog that I've always liked and it's, it's called hyperlipid and it's written by this guy, Peter. Um, and it's really, (laughs) it's kind of groundbreaking stuff, but it's really hard science. And even me with a background in molecular biology, he has so much specific terminology and this kind of specific rabbit hole of research that he's gone down. You know, you can't just, uh, you can't just go to that blog and start reading and understanding it because it's all jargon and it's all, you know, all these terms. And so in the winter and spring of, of 2019, I went through hyperlipid and I looked up all the terms and I tried to figure out what he was talking about. And one of the studies he presented in there is a there's a mouse feeding study and so it's it's one of the classic ways that you make mice fat is you feed them what they call a high fat diet which is uh they can vary a little bit but usually it's like 45 percent of calories are from fat and the rest are from carbohydrates and that happens to be very similar to the american diet and the mice get in the mice get very fat well this woman did her thesis and instead of using, and and normally what they're given is sort of a mixture of lard and corn oil and lard is people think of lard as a saturated fat, but in reality, lard is what you feed the pigs. And, um, and this is so I've got an article on my blog called disastrous trends in American bacon. One of the things that's happened over time is the, the way that we feed our animals and the gen- genetics of their animals, their fat has gotten way more unsaturated. So lard these days is, is, has more polyunsaturated fats than canola oil. Most of it does. And so lard has become very unsaturated. And when they feed it to these mice to make them fat, they have lard and they add corn oil to it as well. So they call it a lard based diet, but it's really a very unsaturated, you know, fat blend that they're feeding these mice that get fat. Anyway, this woman did her thesis and she fed them um, star carbohydrates and something called stearic acid. 
And stearic acid is an 18 carbon saturated fat. It's, it's the, it's the longest chain, most saturated fat that, that we normally would eat in, in food. So butter is around 10% stearic acid. I think beef fat is around 15% stearic acid. And so it's just like a, like an incredibly fatty oil or something or an incredibly fatty acid. Yeah. I mean, so, so when we talk about fats, you know, people say this fat is, um, is an unsaturated fat or a saturated fat. But, but the reality is that every single fat that you've ever eaten has some saturated fat in it. It's got some monounsaturated fat in it, which is the predominant fat in olive oil. And it's got some polyunsaturated fat in it, which is the dominant fat in, um, corn oil and soybean oil. And what's the sort of main, uh, I guess, uh, for sake of what it's going to do to you in your diet, the difference between them? Well, so, so anyway, so what, so what, uh, this Valerie Reeves found in her thesis was if she fed the mice a diet of starch and stearic acid, the long chain saturated fat, they got very lean. Um, and especially they lost all of their abdominal fat. Um, and this was backed up by a few other, you know, a few other studies that showed the exact same thing that if you feed mice really highly saturated fat, in addition to flour, it makes them lean. But if you feed them fairly unsaturated fat, it makes them fat. And so that was anyway, mulling that over in my head and then thinking about, the French and how they stay lean and traditional New Yorkers and how they stayed lean, they were combining flour and potatoes with saturated fat. And what's the major trend that's happened in the U S over the past hundred years? Well, vegetable oils went from a thing that, you know, people didn't eat vegetable oils in 1950 to any great degree. And right now in America, you know, we eat something like 600 calories a day of vegetable oil, you know, it's like 25% of our entire diet or something. Um, it's crazy how, how rapidly these vegetable oils have increased in consumption. And so that made me think, you know, I had this Eureka moment that this could explain the, you know, the French paradox, if you want to call it that. Um, but it, it could kind of like, if it's like, if it's true that, that metabolically we do better on saturated fat than these unsaturated fats, then that it allows me to connect my thoughts about keto to my thoughts about the traditional French diet. Right. It like kind of pulls it all together. And so, so I figured I would try it. And so I ordered um, some pure stearic acid off of uh, you know, Amazon and, and stearic acid is a funny thing. It's um higher, uh, like if you've, you know, beef fat when it cools in the pan is hard, right? Because it's, it's a higher percentage of saturated fat than other fats. Interestingly, beef fat has more, um, has more monounsaturated fat in it than it has saturated fat. You know, people call beef fat saturated fat, but it's really only about 40% saturated. And so beef fat, even at 40% saturated is already kind of hard at room temperature. Well, stearic acid, which is a pure saturated fat, Right. So now we've gone from 40% saturated fat to hundred percent saturated fat. It's hard, like candle wax at room temperature. It's like a melting point is like 170 degrees. So it's a very strange thing to try to cook with. <laughs> so, but I started kind of like, I tried melting it into different fats. I tried melting it into butter. And ultimately I was able 
to kind of like mix some into the flour and I was melting more into the butter and I started making these croissants, which, you know, of course it didn't have to be made into croissants, but I wanted to make the analogy between the French diet and, and, you know, it's funny. Right. And so, so I started, so I was struggling to lose weight with keto. And so I started making these croissants that were very high in stearic acid, um, trying to mimic these mouse studies. And I started eating them and I lost inches off my waist in, in days. Um, certainly within two weeks I had lost about, I think three to four inches off my waist. And so, you know, that's when I kind of had this eureka moment, <laughs> maybe it was onto something and, you know, and I lost weight too. And I also found incredible satiation after the meals. It was like, I would eat, I would eat a couple of these like croissant sandwiches and I just, that was good. I just didn't need to eat again for sometimes like, like I, I write in the article that I actually, I literally just forgot to eat dinner a couple of times. Cause I was, you know, I was doing something, I was writing and you know, I was having some wine and, and then I'd wake up the next morning and go like, God, what did I have for dinner last night? And I was like, geez, I forgot about dinner, which I, I'm not a person who has ever in my life forgotten about dinner. So this is like very unusual behavior for me. Um, and so anyways, that, that kind of started it. And, and I've, since I've been um, just, you know, continuing to write about these topics at fire in a bottle and there's a lot more research that's come out and, you know, and there's, I've also been writing a lot about an enzyme called SCD1, which is very interesting because we make this enzyme, all that it does is it converts saturated fat into unsaturated fat. And it's in our bodies, it's in our fat cells. It turns out that anything that, that makes a lot of SCD1, which is to say that anything that is rapidly unsaturating its fat will store a lot of fat. And conversely, if, if, if something can't make this enzyme and can't unsaturated their fat, they tend to get very lean. And when I say something, what I mean is everything from a C. elegans worm, which is this tiny, tiny worm, like microscopic worm. If, you know, if they can't make this SCD1 gene, if they can't unsaturate their fat, they fail to actually store fat in their tissues. And if you take a, a human heart cell overexpress this enzyme. So if the heart cell is making a lot of this enzyme that unsaturates the fat, well, the, the, the heart cell starts to store more and more fat. It just builds up fat. And so, so this, this enzyme is actually a master regulator of our metabolism. It, it, it turns out, and there's a, there's a whole lot of research from uh, mostly between 2006 and 2012 that was done showing how SCD1, this enzyme that unsaturates our fats plays this crucial role in how we, how we balance our, our energy storage and our, and our fat storage. And so, so my supposition is that we've actually gotten this all wrong. And by eating all of these polyunsaturated fats, like we've been doing for the last 60 years, that's the thing that's led us off the rails and that is the thing that is that is making us uh that is driving forward the wave of obesity and diabetes and if you look at the and i write about this in um i have a series called the the ros theory of obesity and uh skip for a second what that means but um it shows that when you look at obese people and you look at the the fat that they store it's much more unsaturated 
than the body fat of lean people, meaning that one, they're storing more of the polyunsaturated fats, but also that they're making more of this enzyme. And so they're converting all of their saturated fat into, into these monounsaturated fats. And so, you know, when, it, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of this. And so one of the things I think that's also happened, people's body temperatures have dropped. And so I just wrote an article, I think it's called, this is your body temperature on vegetable oil. But what it's about is there's a tribe of people in, um, in the Amazon, I think it's in Bolivia. It was very well documented that over the last 20 years, their body temperature dropped by about uh, one degree Fahrenheit. And the only thing that really changed in that time, uh, they know this because they, you know, they started, they set up a medical center down there. And so they started taking everyone's temperature. And when they first got there, everyone's temperature was always 98.6 degrees all the time. And then that's, this was in like 2005. And then by 2013, I think it was like, as people got older, it seemed like their temperature was kind of starting to drop. They weren't, they were a little all over the charts. And then, and then by 2016 or 18, I think, you know, their temperature was low, was consistently low all the time. So something happened. And, and the only thing that it seems like happened is a store opened where they could buy, you know, they were basically, um, they were farmers you know, they forage some of their food, but mostly their, their diet was these very high starch, very low fat things. It was like manioc and um, plantains and uh, things that are just almost all starch. And so what happens is if you, if your body makes fat out of starch, it actually ends up being highly saturated. And so uh, and I show this on my blog, a couple articles is that um, cultures living primarily on starch, such as like the traditional Chinese diet or, um, or other diets, uh, their body fat is highly, highly saturated. So the only fat that they have access to is, is highly saturated. Um, that's if you eat all starch. And so that's counterintuitive to people, I think, <laughs> because people associate, having a lot of saturated fat with eating things like steak. But in fact, um, if anything, eating meat makes your, your stored body fat less saturated than if you were to eat all starch. The only thing that changed in this traditional diet was the introduction of store-bought food. They got access to store-bought food um, and then their body temperatures all dropped. So, and I don't know if you've looked at any labels in a store, but if you go into a store and look at processed food, all of it has vegetable oil. I mean, 95% of it has vegetable oil in it. And probably, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I assume that for a culture that eats all starch all the time, they probably wanted, you know, vegetable oil to fry the starch in, right? That was probably a, a must-see item. And so, you know, I think that eating too much unsaturated fat actually decreases your metabolic rate, basically. Um, your body temperature lowers, your metabolic rate goes down. And, and I think that's the beginning of the, the beginning of the problems. And then over time, as a result of eating all the vegetable oil, then your SCD1 gene also becomes dysregulated. And now you're like, uh, triply hosed. <laughs> so so I, have a, I have a question. Um, yeah. 
why why do you think it was uh that from traditional new york times and whatnot that we have decided as a society to switch over to unsaturated fats instead of just continuing with like you know butters and stuff like that sure well this was this was done very intentionally um a guy named ansel keys was a researcher and and he was convinced he became convinced based on what i would argue is not very good data, essentially a hunch that he had that dietary saturated fat caused heart disease and that we could prevent heart disease if we all switched over to eating corn oil and soybean oil that was seized on by, you know, by the vegetable oil industry. I don't know if this is true, but today, I don't know if this is still true today, but I remember when I was a kid, you know, corn oil on the outside of the bottle, there was a little heart and it said, you know, endorsed by the American medical association or the, you know, the, the heart, um, I can't remember the name of the, the American heart association. Incidentally, Ansel keys, the guy who had this hunch him and his associates, uh, yes, men basically took over the, the, uh, the board of the directors of the American heart association, or at least the part of it that, that kind of decided those things. So Ansel keys sort of took over the board. You know, that's how we got this all done was he took over the board of the American heart association and they were the ones making the recommendations and they were the ones, the vegetable oil industry, right. Was using to sell its product was basically this endorsement by the same organization that the guy whose theory it was had, he had taken over sort of the deciding control of it. So it was all this kind of very, um, Anyway, and that's and that's essentially why, though, that, that we think that to this day, and most of the evidence, when you when you look at all the studies done, they're not, they don't, they don't, it doesn't usually work. Uh, very typically, uh, in all of the studies done, um, there's very zero to no evidence. I guess zero and no are kind of the same. That eating soybean oil and corn oil actually prevent heart disease. Um, it's, it's yet to be, they've yet to do the conclusive study. They actually did a lot of the studies. They did very good controlled studies in the late sixties and seventies or late sixties and early seventies. And they all essentially didn't work. And, and they sort of just didn't, they published very little of it. Um, and in very recent times, this guy, um, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head, which is a shame because he did some brilliant studies, but he did he basically did a bunch of detective work and he went into um, one of the main researchers who did this study passed away. He went to this guy's house in Minnesota, dug through all of his, um, basically contacted his son and said, Hey, you know, I'm interested in this research that your father did. Do you know if it's still around? And the son said, well, my dad kept all of his, all of his stuff in the basement of our house. If you want to go look for it and, and see if you can find it. I, I would, you know, you could do it. And so he spent like weeks going through all of these, this whole basement of files. And he finally found studies that they really hadn't published much of the data from and showed that in fact, they did the, the trial where they had two, they were using these inmates. Um, it was like a mental hospital and they had two separate cafeterias set up in one cafeteria. They were given the traditional, like, you know, butter and meat and whatever. And in the other cafeteria they were using, I think it was safflower oil, this highly unsaturated fat. And they were feeding them that, you know, they did this for several years. And at the end, it just didn't work. Like there was no difference in heart 
disease deaths between the two groups. Was there any difference between the two groups? No. Uh, if anything, one of the things that happened is the people whose cholesterol levels went down the most were the most likely to die. So, so the more your cholesterol level went down during the study, the more likely you were to die of any cause, uh, not necessarily heart disease deaths, but, but yes, the people who's, who were most affected by the treatment, which is to say, if you eat this vegetable oil, your cholesterol level will go down and you'll be more likely to die. That is basically the finding of the study. But like I said, they didn't actually publish that until Ramsden <laughs> found the old data in this guy's basement and re re analyzed it and was just published in 2016. There's a great story about that on, um, uh, was it Malcolm Gladwell's podcast? He did, there's a great podcast and I'm spacing on the name of the podcast, but, uh, there's an episode about Ramsden and this whole story about, you know, the Minnesota it's, it's fascinating. It's a, it's a great listen, um, to anyone who's interested and I'm by spacing on the name of that podcast too, because I'm not good at remembering the names of things. Uh, Dan, Dan Collin, you mean Dan Collins revisionist history? Uh, I, I could be, I'm not sure, but <laughs> people, people find it. Um, yeah, so Dan Collins, Revisionist History, Rams, Ramsden. Yeah, that's it. Ramsden. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I've got the name wrong, right? Yeah, but that's a, but that's so that's a great listen, and, and you'll hear all about the history of this, of this research and how it all went, why it was or wasn't published, and and it's it's actually really fascinating. So that's a good that's a good listen to anyone interested in that particular topic of does saturated fat cause heart disease? There was a few Minnesota prison studies done, right? I feel like there was another one where they just like starved people for like weeks on end or something like that. It was also done by Ansel Keys. Oh, wow. This guy was pretty bad to people, huh? <laughs> yeah, he's, he hasn't been great. <laughs> prison inmate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Crazy shit. Um, so... I, I was reading something on your website before saying that uh, there was a lady who was drinking a lot of pu'er and that has this like SD, SCD1 suppressant in it and she like lost a lot of weight just from drinking a ton of tea or something like that. So. Yeah, I mean, so so there's been, uh, yeah, so she was, she was, well, she saw my article and so she did, you know, she basically did the things that, that I'd recommended, which was to eliminate the polyunsaturated fats from her diet and switched over. She was using a lot of, I think she was using, um, a lot of cocoa butter and she was, you know, she, she, like I say, she eliminated, I think she also eliminated the chicken and pork out of her diet because I said, those can be pretty potent sources of these polyunsaturated fats. And she eliminated nuts as nuts are the fat and nuts are very unsaturated. And if you read through keto message boards, you can find a lot of people who say like, yeah, every time I, I start eating more nuts, I, I stall on my weight loss, you know? Mm. And so there's a common, there seems to be a common thread there. And so, um, so she, yeah, so she replaced all of the unsaturated fats in her, in her diet with saturated fats. And she was drinking a lot of this Pua tea, which inhibits that enzyme SCD one and she was able to, yeah, she lost a ton of weight and dropped, you know, I don't know, four or five dress sizes, it seems like. And, and I actually have one that I'm going to publish this week. This one's fantastic. You know, this guy saw my blog and he's been doing basically exactly what I recommend for, for the last five months. And he's like, went from 
you know, uh, not like super obese, but certainly had a, a beer belly. And, and I think he's 53, you know, he's almost got a six pack now and he did it just by, just by removing all the polyunsaturated fats from his diet, focusing on getting a lot more saturated fats. And he's also been taking a uh, fish oil supplement, which is, this one's complicated. <laughs> so fish oil is a polyunsaturated fat. The thing that I tell people to remove, but um, there's things called omega-6 fats and there's things called omega-3 fats. And we, we usually get more, the omega-6 polyunsaturated fats, that's what's in corn oil and what's in soybean oil. And it's the kind of thing, and it's what we probably are getting too much of, I would argue. And the omega-3s are, the, are also polyunsaturated, but they're the ones that you find in like seafood, salmon, et cetera. And so we probably, in addition to, to minimizing the total amount of polyunsaturated fat we eat, I would argue, we also maybe want a better balance between the sixes and the threes. And it seems like there are some benefits to taking a little bit of the omega-3s to kind of balance out that ratio. I don't recommend going overboard on them. I think that, that you know, the other problem with these polyunsaturated fats is they're very prone to oxidizing and becoming rancid. And when they oxidize, they make these things called lipid peroxides and lipid peroxides can cause all kinds of downstream problems. And so he is minimizing his polyunsaturated fats and he's adding back a little bit of the supplementary omega-3s, which also suppress SCD1. So he's inhibiting SCD1. He's minimizing overall uh, polyunsaturated fat and he's got a good balance of six and three. And he's, you know, he's been losing weight steadily for five months doing that, you know, and, and, and he's eating a lot of calories. He's eating like, you know, uh, 2,800 calories a day. I mean, he's a fairly good sized guy, but it's not huge, you know? And so he's found that, yeah, his metabolic rate is adapting to his caloric intake as long as he, you know, keeps it saturated. Mm. So I, I have a question. Um, why do you think we're so bad at knowing what to eat? Like, why do you think there's all these food pyramids out there that are like, all right, the main thing you should have is like bread. And then the second main thing is vegetables. And then the least thing that you should have is like fats. Well, I think that if, if, uh, <laughs> if your assumption is that the main type of fats you should eat, you, you'll, you will be eating is vegetable oils. Then I actually agree with that pyramid. But I think that if you, if you look like I said, well, like I say, I always go back to tradition and I go back to, to what I know. If you look at, yeah, a New Yorker in 1960, um, stay lean eating butter all the time and whole milk and, and, and all the rest. And so I think, and there's a lot of cultures that demonstrate this, like Polynesians eating, you know, coconut oil all the time uh, with starch um, and starch eating populations tend to stay very lean and they have the most saturated body fat, you know, and this is, and I think that, I think that statement is the thing that kind of ties it all together. Um, if you have like people who have very saturated body fat, I would argue are going to have a higher metabolic rate. They're going to have a higher body temperature and they're going to be more able to, we, we make a hormone called leptin. And leptin is produced by our fat cells. And the job of leptin is to, is to um, increase, basically it's there to increase our metabolic rate 
when we become obese. Um, we have a feedback system that's supposed to fix that. And okay, so what does leptin do? Basically three things. The one that gets all the attention is it acts as a, a, a satiety hormone in your hypothalamus. So it tells you to, you know, you should feel fuller when leptin is signaling. But the other thing that it does is it massively downregulates the SCD1 enzyme. And so it makes your fat more saturated. At the same time, it increases the rate that uh, fat actually enters your mitochondria. So, you know, uh, our mitochondria are the things where we actually burn fat. Um, and, and so leptin is, is saying, okay, shuttle more fat into the mitochondria to burn it and make sure that it's really saturated because those two things together, that is what is going to maximally increase your metabolism. And so, right. And so that's the natural, that's what our body's natural response to becoming obese is supposed to be. Our, our metabolic rate is supposed to increase to balance it out. Right. But it stops working when our fat gets too unsaturated. This is the problem. And this is why I think that, you know, people talk about leptin resistance all the time. Uh, I think leptin resistance is just simply caused by your body fat not being saturated enough. And, I, and so one of the things that, that you see is that in, so there was a quote, um, there was this study done called the, the China study or the China health study. And it was actually done at Cornell. Um, I went to Cornell. Um, you know, the quote from the authors when the original study came out in 1993 was that the least active Chinese person consumed 30% more calories than an American of the same size and weighed, or, you know, of roughly the same size and weighed 20% less. So you see in a starch eating culture, they eat a lot more calories and they stay leaner, you know, so it really is about metabolic rate. I don't think it's about, you know, sloth or gluttony. I think that we've lost, we've lost the top gear on our metabolism. That's what I think has happened. And, you know, <laughs> here's where the science gets more complicated, but I think I can make it reasonably simple. So we have in our mitochondria, what we're essentially doing is we are oxygen is, you know, molecular oxygen is very, what we call um, electrophilic, which means it likes to, it likes to take electrons from things. And so when we talk about things being oxidized, which is what's happening in our mitochondria, right? Um, a, uh, a fire is what it is. What's happening is, is wood, or petroleum is made mostly of carbon and hydrogen. And so carbon and hydrogen bond to each other really well. Um, and they can make these long molecules, things like fat and things like glucose, but also things like fiber from plants are mostly, and, and hydrocarbons are mostly made out of carbon and hydrogen as the name suggests. And so, but, but what happens is when oxygen comes in, it really, you know, instead of the, the carbon and hydrogen being bonded to each other, oxygen wants to bind that hydrogen. You know, oxygen O2 in the air, what's happening is oxygen is sharing, two oxygen molecules are sharing electrons. 
but the oxygen is actually a lot happier if it can basically steal the electrons from hydrogen by by bonding to it because and if, if you have something like uh, h2o water hydrogen doesn't hold its electrons very strongly it gives them up pretty freely and so when you have water oxygen is basically controlling the electrons of those two other hydrogen so so oxygen is really happy in water it's happier in water than it is in o2 what's in the air and so so that's what oxidation is and hold on one second i gotta plug in um so oxygen basically just likes ripping electrons away from hydrogen and carbon and that's what causes and that's what causes fire but the same thing is happening in our mitochondria and in our mitochondria, there's this really, it's a probably billion years old, uh, conserved, it's, it's basically a bottleneck. And what happens in the mitochondria is these electrons from the hydrogen and carbon are allowed to flow back to oxygen. So oxygen becomes happy. And that's why we say that our, that we quote oxidize our foods. You know, that's how we get energy. What happens is in the mitochondria, the electron though is passed from a bunch of different molecules and it kind of makes, the electrons kind of make a bunch of different hops. And, and in the meantime, the mitochondria is, is pumping, they call it pumping protons. What that means is it's like a little battery. It's, it's pumping positive charges across this membrane so that the outside of the mitochondria becomes, has a, a positive voltage and the inside has a negative voltage. And so then those protons are allowed to flow back down through that spins this crazy protein. It's one of the, it's, a, it's miraculous that we evolved to have this thing. It's like this whirling turbine. And what it does is it turns that, that voltage differential into ATP. And if you remember from science class, ATP is the actual kind of like stored chemical energy that we use to move our muscles and do like 90% of the, bodies activities are getting their energy from ATP. So the mitochondria has this really clever way of turning the stored energy in, um, you know, in, in, in fat and in carbohydrates into ATP. That's the whole, that's the whole game being played. And it does it using this voltage differential. And so if your fat is highly saturated and this is where I have this thing called the reactive or yeah, the ROS theory of obesity, ROS means reactive oxygen species. And um, what those are, are sometimes oxygen will pick up an extra electron because like I say, oxygen really likes taking in electrons, but then it's in this situation where it has this unpaired outer electron. It actually becomes way more reactive than normal oxygen. This makes this thing called superoxide, but that quickly gets converted into hydrogen peroxide. So in the course of all of this oxidizing that's happening in the mitochondria and these electrons are moving all around, uh, inevitably some of those electrons kind of ping back out and make the superoxide, which quickly gets converted to hydrogen peroxide. And that hydrogen peroxide is actually a, uh, a, a very deeply conserved signaling molecule because where did the mitochondria come from? Well, at some point, actually, if you go back long enough, cells didn't have interior membranes and the mitochondria has this double membrane. If you think about like an amoeba, 
if you remember from science class and how they eat, they have that, they will kind of like engulf another cell and just like take it into them. And then they'll like eat. Yeah, they just like absorb it kind of. <laughs> yeah. And so we think that the way that the mitochondria, um, became a thing was that one cell engulfed another one, except instead of eating it, that other cell just hung out in there and like evolved to live there. And that's where mitochondria came from. And so of course that, that, that original organism that became the mitochondria would have been doing exactly the things we talk about. It would have been oxidizing its food. It it would have been, it would have had this electron transport chain. It would have been doing all the things it would have been making, superoxide and hydrogen peroxide and what would it have done with those waste products well it would have just it would have just pumped them outside into the environment right just get rid of it it's a waste product you don't want it but so when this when the big cell engulfed the little cell the little cell would have been doing the same thing it would have been exporting all of this hydrogen peroxide (laughs) and and so that you know, that's a problem for the bigger cell, right? Because the the hydrogen peroxide is fairly reactive. It's going to cause all these problems. And so the host cell had to evolve to deal with the fact that, you know, it had had engulfed this creature that was exporting this waste product, right? And so that's why hydrogen peroxide is such an important signaling molecule for the cell, because the cell needs to know <laughs> the cell. The only way that the cell knows what fuel is being oxidized is by how much hydrogen peroxide the mitochondria is giving off. And it turns out that the thing that gives off the most reactive oxygen species when it's being oxidized is saturated fat. And so if we assume that, if we start from the assumption that most of the time our body fat is fairly saturated and this is absolutely true in like i say a starch eating culture then whether or not the mitochondria is producing a lot of these reactive oxygen species is a switch that tells the nucleus okay what are we doing right now are we are we oxidizing glucose or are we oxidizing fat right so, so that's a really fundamental underlying switch. And, and this is, like I said, this is evolutionally conserved. Um, it's been this way for at least a billion years. And so the only way that the, and so what happens is the nucleus of the cell behaves very, there's a thing called the Randall cycle. So, so any given mitochondria can either oxidize glucose or fat, but it, it, doesn't do both at the same time. It switches back and forth. And the way that the mitochondria or the way that the nucleus knows that the mitochondrial is doing is by how much hydrogen peroxide is being produced. Now, the problem where this, and, and this worked great for a billion years, and where this all gets mixed up is the problem is the polyunsaturated fats cause the same amount of hydrogen peroxide generation in the mitochondria as the saturated fats do we started eating all these polyunsaturated fats and we stopped making these reactive oxygen species, which for a long time people thought, Oh, well, that's really good because you know, the reactive oxygen species, they are a little bit dangerous. They can cause some damage, you know, so maybe we don't want to make. And so that's why people thought initially that one of the reasons people thought polyunsaturated fats were good, but it turns out that, (laughs) you know, you break this basic underlying signal and that's the problem. And so, okay. So we've gotten fat. We're making a lot of leptin. Leptin is driving this increase in 
fat flow into the mitochondria. And let's say we're a healthy person who's in a starch eating culture. So the leptin is increasing the, the rate of saturated fat oxidation. Uh, the mitochondria starts putting out a lot of this hydrogen peroxide. And the, res- the way the body responds to that is we produce something called uncoupling protein. And what uncoupling protein does is it allows a second way protons to flow back into the mitochondria. So it short circuits that, that voltage differential that I was talking about, how the mitochondria is like a little battery. An uncoupling protein is like if you take a wire and you just connect it to the positive and negative terminal of the battery at the same time, it just releases a bunch of heat. It's dangerous. Don't try this at home. Uh, the metal will melt. And so what, what happens is the way that the body actually increases its metabolic rate is by producing these uncoupling proteins. And it, it actually reduces the, it actually reduces that voltage difference across the mitochondria. And it makes it, it makes it easier for the mitochondria to pump the protons End result is you end up just simply burning off extra calories as heat instead of storing them as chemical energy in the form of fat and ATP. And so it's basically a way of just simply, yeah, of just literally just burning off extra calories. Unsaturated fats don't produce as much reactive oxygen species. That's not a controversial statement. That's very well known and it's been well known. And if you can't, if you can't generate those reactive oxygen species, you're not going to make as much uncoupling protein and your metabolic rate is going to drop and your body temperature is going to drop. Is this why, like the you're talking before about certain cultures and their measurement of body temperature based on like differences in in their society and stuff? Is that why, like uh, having a higher body temperature is sort of like a good measure of like having a sort of better metabolic rate because they just have more heat and yeah, I think that I think the body temperature is a good, you know, it's a little bit imprecise, but I think it's a, it's a good first pass guess at what is, you know, how is my metabolism doing? And I've always had a low body temperature. You know, um, when I, when I first started paying attention, I was, my body temperature was right around 97 degrees, maybe 97.1, 97.2. And I've talked to other people that were like, yeah, mine's like 96.5, you know, like really low. Uh, my friend's mom went to the, who's not in great health, went to the doctor and her body temperature was like 95.8, which is like insanely low. Yeah. It's like a inverse fever or something. Uh, Yeah, kind of. But, but so there's, there's another paper that I talk about in the, this is your body temperature on vegetable oil that shows that in fact, it looks like since, you know, they say since the industrial revolution, the average, you know, global temperature or the average global body temperature in the industrialized worlds anyways, has absolutely dropped. I think they said by a degree and a half, something like that Fahrenheit. And interestingly, the people in the, in the Bolivian culture that I talk about in that article, after the, you know, after they had access to store-bought foods for 15 years, um, their average body temperature dropped to what, the average body temperature of everyone in the UK. And so it's like, it's like, okay, well, it seems like when we lose the ability to do this, um, you know, leptin induced thermogenesis, thermogenesis just means making heat. When we lose the ability to do that, it seems our body temperatures all drop to, you know, by like about a degree or a degree and a half. And this has to do with the hydrogen peroxide basically 
uh, putting out a bunch of like waste matter essentially that like heats your body up, right? Well, sort of it's, it's our body when our body sees a lot of that hydrogen peroxide, which is produced in response to us having a lot of this leptin and leptin you, you, to put it simply, if you have more fat, then you have more leptin. Mm -hmm. So, so leptin, as we get fatter and fatter, we make more and more leptin, which is what's supposed to happen is that we start burning fat quicker. And when we burn fat quicker and when our fat is saturated, we make a lot more hydrogen peroxide and our body's response to that is to uncouple our mitochondria and it's ultimately that uncoupling, which increases our metabolic rate. That's what allows the protons to just flow back through as heat. And that's what allows us to just, um, yeah, to just burn off calories as heat instead of. I feel like there needs to be uh, like a Venn diagram where like uh, the heading is like, you should have hydrogen peroxide in your body. And then like one half of it is like molecular biologist. And then the other half is like angry YouTube commenter. And like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well it's like um <laughs> yeah it's 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 a i know that it's a lot of things to kind of get into place but um you know essentially i mean look if we could say it in the in the nutshell version is simply that vegetable oil decreases your metabolism by causing you n to not be able to do leptin induced thermogenesis that's the very simple version. And the mechanism by which it does it is hydrogen peroxide in the mitochondria, but you don't need to understand the mechanism <laughs> you know, to understand the terminology. So I have like one sort of main question. Uh, and that is like, are you still sort of just eating croissants every day? <laughs> or did, did you stop eating them or like, uh, uh no. So I well, so I've, I've gone back and forth a bunch of times because I don't want to, uh, it's actually sort of interesting to run these experiments on myself while I, while I still have some extra weight. So I've, I've sort of purposefully been like, I'll do this kind of intense diet for like, however long, six weeks or two months or three months and see what happens. And then I'll go back to just kind of like, I don't go, I don't like start eating vegetable oil, but I'll go back and just sort of casually eat, you know, around the clock without doing any stearic acid supplementation. And I know that in that, when I do that, um, I will gain some of the weight back. My metabolic rate will drop. And then once I've done that for a couple of months and then I feel like, okay, I've done, I've sort of reset my metabolism back to what it was. Now I'm going to try this other you know, now I'm going to try this new dietary experiment. So, so right now I'm actually sort of done with that. So I'm actually now on like, I'm trying to get down to my target weight this winter. And so now I am doing a lot of stearic acid supplementation. And in fact, I just made this new croissant recipe based on, um, using beef suet as the primary fat. Um, beef suet is, is beef kidney fat and is, there's a lot of traditional, um, my grandmother was of British descent and we always had suet pudding at Christmas time. And so beef suet is a really saturated fat. And I think it's about 30 or 40% stearic acid. I think it's comparable with cocoa butter. And so you basically grind up the beef fat and you add it into the flour and you like make the pastries like that. And so 
with that as my starting point, I, I made these croissants using uh, stearic acid mixed into the flour as like the, one of the main fat sources of these croissants. So, uh, so I in fact have been eating croissants again. I went a long time without eating, without making any actual croissants because it is a lot of work to make croissants, but I'm. Yeah. You have to like, uh, do the crazy folds and you have to like hit all the butter together with like a hammer and you know yeah it's a labor of love to be sure but i actually worked with a baker friend a couple weeks ago and she showed me how she makes them and so i've actually gotten a lot better at making them so so i'm, I'm back to making croissants again and i so a part of me thinks i should make some of them and sell them on, the, on my website to see if that would be a popular option but yeah i'd buy some for sure so so when you go back to uh like you said you kind of have like two modes and one is you know being in the diet mode and the other is just sort of chilling a little bit um when you're in that sort of chill mode you still never go back to vegetable oil and don't go back to vegetable oil no i go back to like you know what i mean in a lot of ways i what i go back to is like what a classic french or american diet would have been i'll do like eggs and toast with butter for breakfast and dinner might be you know, steak and potatoes, you know what I mean? With, with butter. And so it's pretty simple, but, but in my um, case, I know that my underlying biology is already sort of broken because <laughs> uh, I, I have this article on the website called the SCD one theory of obesity. Um, part two is the, been the more popular one, but that's where I talk about uh, there's an actual blood test you can do and it will tell you, whether or not you're making too much of this SCD1 enzyme. And in my case, I am making too much of it. Um, and so I call that the post-obese metabolism. And so, and so that's, so I know that if I go back, if I go back to just a regular traditional American or French diet, um, eating kind of ad lib that I will gain weight when they might not have, and I think it's because I make too much SCD1. And so, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to fix that problem. <laughs> so, uh, I, there's, a, there's a tropical oil which actually inhibits SCD1. So I've been using that and I've been talking about things like poor tea, which is a, a natural repressor of it. And um, the long chain fish oils can repress it. And there's something that's in butter, but you can also buy as a supplement called CLA, which represses it. So, you know, and I've got a lot of people who, who are, you know, trying my diet and my ideas and, you know, getting, getting feedback. So I'm getting a lot of feedback from a lot of licks. So there's a Reddit group um, that's, that was actually started the day that I wrote the, or that I released the croissant diet article. It's our saturated fat. And that's a really good discussion forum where people are posting a lot of these ideas. Um, and actually that's where I found the, the woman who told me about the poor tea, you know, that wasn't my idea. That was somebody from, from the Reddit group. Um, and so, yeah, so it's cool that, that we're kind of like building a, um, a community around this concept. And I'm, I'm getting a lot of ideas and feedback from my, my users, like people trying to diet and try to do the things and, and then, you know, we go back and forth. So it's fun. And you said um, also when you're in this uh, sort of chilling mode and not in the diet mode that you eat around the clock, does that sort of um, infer or insinuate that when you're dieting, you do intermittent fasting? Yes. So I, I, I do intermittent fasting. And, and like I said, when I first started the croissant diet, I sort of started doing intermittent fasting by mistake. I just 
<laughs> I just wasn't hungry. You know what I mean? Like I say, I, I missed dinner a couple of times. Just, I just, I just didn't think to make it. Um, so that was in the first part of the croissant diet. I was like, Oh, if I eat enough saturated fat, I'm actually really satiated in a way that I never. It's kind of like protein, right? Protein also sort of gives you that like really full feeling. For some people it does. Um, for me, it never has. I mean, I'm one of those people who can too traditionally, I could just eat and eat and I wouldn't step up from the, you know, I would just keep eating. I'd go back for like fourths, you know, I never had that feeling of like true, like, I just don't want anymore. Like I can't eat another bite, even if I wanted to. But now when I do the really high stearic acid foods and the really high saturated fat foods like these, um, I, I made, I, like I say, I made these uh, beef suet croissants and I made them into little cheeseburger. I made little cheeseburgers with those as the buns last night. And like, I literally had one bite left of the cheeseburger and I, I, I wanted to eat it in theory. And I literally, I picked it up to my mouth and I put it down. I was like, I can't, I can't do it. It's too much. I can't, I can't take this last bite. And I left it there and I threw it away this morning. And so there is something, you know, and I'm not the only one who's, you know, a lot of people, um, I'm on Twitter too. A lot of people on Twitter have responded like, Oh my God, it's so satiating when I eat like this. Um, so if people want to follow me on Twitter, I'm, I'm a uh, fire underscore bottle is my, is my handle on there. But, um, but yeah, there's, so there's, there's, there's two things happening. I think one is the fact that eating this really saturated fat is very satiating. So it does kind of, you know, help with your color, with your calories in. But then I also think that, um, and one of the things I, I do is I like to eat in addition to the intermittent fasting, I'm doing what I call stearic acid macro dosing. Um, where like when I eat, I try to eat a really big meal because I think that I basically try to eat a, a feast meal and then go as go a long time between meals. So you kind of try like sort of almost one meal a day type uh, like, so it's kind of like a 24 hour one or 23 and one fasting type situation. Yeah. And sometimes I do. And honestly, sometimes I go a second day of, sometimes I'll just fast a day between these big feasts. And when I eat the feast meals, I try to get like 3,500 calories in. Wow. And then I, and then I might, sometimes I'll, I'll, I switch it back and forth where I'm eating either one meal a day or like one meal every other day. But then if I do that, it's a, usually a really big meal. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. And I also do, I also do my other, um, this is my other, uh, breakthrough was, so I'm a wine drinker and I've noticed that when I drink wine, it really blunts my hunger. Um, so I do a thing that I call wine fasting, which is where <laughs> on my, if I'm fat, if I'm fasting for a day, I'll drink a bottle of wine and that will kill my hunger. So it's no solid food, but it is it's like, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's crazy that like almost everything is just brain chemicals, right? Like if you can just like pump up your ghrelin and like really turn your, uh, sorry, pump up your leptin, turn down your ghrelin. And then I guess like, while you're at it, just crank your serotonin or something, then like you'll just be like stoked all the time and never hungry or. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, kind of. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. And then I've just done this thing where the, I've been taking this, um, like I say, that oil, which inhibits SCD one. And that seems to really increase my, like, I'm not, I'm not hungry. And I, and I think that might just be, so it is true that, um, one of the things that, that, um, stimulates satiety or satiety 
is the production of reactive oxygen species in the hypothalamus itself. So the hypothalamus is like, you know, that's what really made your hypothalamus is, plays a huge role in your hunger levels. It's sensing a lot of different things. It's like sensing your blood sugar levels. It's sensing whether or not you have free fatty acids in your blood, which is like fat cells want to feed the body. They do this thing called lipolysis. And basically what they're doing is they're just like releasing fat into the bloodstream. And so when you have a meal and your insulin level goes up, your fat cells stop releasing these free fatty acids, but your blood sugar goes up to kind of counteract it. And one of the articles on my blog is about a study they did in Spain and they gave people either um, like starch with butter or starch with olive oil or starch with vegetable oil. And in the group that got the butter, the, the level of, so when you eat the meal, your free fatty acids drop because insulin tells your fat cells, okay, we have incoming fuel. We don't need the fat right now. And so your fat cells kind of stop feeding your body after a meal because, you know, that's what you want, right? It's like, okay, well, we're eating all this food. Now we should be storing fat and then we should burn it between meals, right? And so, so that's normal. But what happens is in the butter eating group, the free fatty acids within like four hours after the meal actually rebound and are higher than before the people ate. But the people with the olive oil or the vegetable oil, the free fatty acids, even six or eight hours after the meal are lower than before they ate the meal. They don't bounce back as quickly. And so one of the things your hypothalamus is, is monitoring to see whether it should make you hungry again, are your levels of these free fatty acids. So with the saturated fat, the free fatty acids bounce back quickly. Your fat cells are feeding your body. Your hypothalamus sees that as we've got plenty of fuel. We don't need to eat again. If you eat starch and vegetable oil, the free fatty acids don't rebound quickly. So four hours after the meal, you know, your blood sugar is back down to baseline or some people who get hypoglycemic, it's even lower than before you ate the meal and your free fatty acids are lower. And so your hypothalamus is seeing this as like, oh man, we got to eat. And so that, I think that's one of the mechanisms by which saturated versus unsaturated fats affect your kind of long-term satiation and your ability to go a long time between meals is that, you know, your body, your body fat cells just don't respond as quickly when vegetable oil is the, is the fat in the meal. Anyway, that was a complicated, but I got me thinking about that because we were talking about the hypothalamus, but so, but yeah, so the hypothalamus is absolutely monitoring blood glucose levels, free fatty acid levels, but it's also monitoring production of reactive oxygen species. And that plays a huge role in triggering satiation after a meal. Um, and so it's complicated, but, but clearly, um, right. The, the ROS is playing a big role in it all. And it's also monitoring, it's also monitoring things like cannabinoids, like, um, like you get the munchies after you smoke pot. Right. It's like, oh shit, there's a bunch of cannabinoids. We better eat chips. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's integrating all these different signals and it's no one really understands entirely how it works, but, but we know little bits of it. Right. Yeah. It seems like the bottom line for losing weight is just like, if you burn more, f more calories than you put in, then you'll lose weight. Like basically if you're at a caloric def deficit, right? So if you can just like control 
how hungry you feel, i.e. how many calories you're putting in and then you're still just burning X amount every day just via your baseline activities, then you should be losing weight, right? Yeah, and I think that's where I think that's where a lot of my um the things that I talk about and I'm studying, like a lot of people are thinking about calories in. I spend a lot more time thinking about calories out, you know what I mean? Metabolic rate, body temperature, um, how we can, how we can burn fuel quicker. Um, one of the, the studies that I talk about in the ROS theory of obesity, everybody loves this one. So they gave people a, uh, they had people go on a, a low fat vegan diet for two days. And then they gave him these, it's like a banana smoothie and the banana smoothie has like 25 ish grams of stearic acid in it. And what they showed was within several hours of people consuming this smoothie. Um, well, it turns out, you know, we think of our mitochondria as being like these little, like they're always drawn as these like little kind of like football shapes, just kind of like free floating. But it turns out that's not really true. They can be very long and they can, um, they actually fuse with each other. And so they can go from being this like big branched structure or they can like break up into these little individual mitochondria. And so after the, after the two days of the low fat vegan diet, um, the mitochondria are fragmented and they're all broken up into little pieces. And then within four or five hours of consuming this banana shake with the stearic acid in it, the mitochondria literally all fuse together into this big branch structure. And when they do that, um, rates of fat oxidation go way up. And so the, this paper, and, and it's cool because they, they did these stains in the paper of the, you know, within like an electron microscope and some kind of signaling molecule. And so the, you can see uh, the mitochondria actually fuse together and they, they use the stain. So they're like bright green and you can see how they're all like fused in one situation and just not in the other. Um, so it's pretty cool. And that's an, then, you know, and that's a direct example of, okay, you know, I consume the stearic acid, my mitochondria all fuse together and I started burning more fat. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm, that I'm talking more about than um, necessarily controlling our caloric intake because the guy, the, like I say, the guy, and, and I'm going to publish this um, in the next couple of days, probably, but, but this other um, kind of testimonial that this guy just sent me, you know, he was eating, there's no signs that he lowered his caloric intake. He said, in fact, in, at first when he, um, cut the polyunsaturated out of his diet and switched to all saturated fat. He said he was kind of like, he was almost like pushing it. He was like eating tons and tons of calories and still losing weight. And he was like, I can't believe this is working. He was eating like Haagen-Dazs and all this stuff. Um, and so, you know, I do think that if, if everything is right, um, the proper way for your metabolism to respond to increased calories in is to increase calories out. That's when everything's working right. You know, as you're, if you pack on a few pounds and if you eat more calories, your metabolic rate should just increase to deal with it, which is what happens in, you know, places like um, China or starch eating cultures when, because every culture has um, 
like feasting holidays, right? Um, you have holidays where you are purposefully like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to have this week long feasting holiday and, and, and they do. And, and in healthy cultures, you just, your metabolic rate just goes up afterwards and you, you burn off the calories. You just start like sweating and shitting and (laughs) pretty much. Yeah. And we just kind of fail to do that as a, as a culture. And, and, you know, I, obviously I've said that I think it's because of the, it's too much vegetable oil and too much SCD one are our problems. We're too unsaturated. Right. And it's, and it's this stuff that you're talking about, um, in the field, uh, that gets talked about in like, I guess, molecular biology and, you know, just, uh, I guess, you know, science in that, that side of science in general, is this like a controversial thing to say that, that you should be eating more saturated fat? (sighs) So I don't think that any of the, it's like, I think that if you look at the, all of the individual little arguments, like if I say, um, okay, well, fat, saturated fat causes more ROS generation in the mitochondria. I think that's an uncontroversial thing to say. I think almost all scientists who pay attention to that kind of thing would agree with that. Okay. Well, so then when we make more ROS, these, um, these, uh, transcription factors are produced and it causes us to make more uncoupling protein and uncoupling protein increases our metabolism. I think that's also a fairly uncontroversial statement. I think almost all scientists would agree with that. Then when I flip back and say, okay, well, therefore (laughs) we should eat more saturated fat. I think that's when it becomes controversial because we have this whole, um, it's like a stigma surrounding it stigma. We have decades of acculturation to, well, saturated fat is bad. We know that. Right. 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 Yeah. You have to, it's like, you can make, it's like, here's the series of arguments. Like here's the steps of reactions that happens. Here's why this is better. Here's how the biochemistry works. And I think people are fine. All of the individual steps that I'm talking about are, are fairly uncontroversial, but then when you put it together in a larger argument, that's when you start dealing with cultural stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And of course, the first thing that everyone says is the other thing that I, I actually, <laughs> again, this is complicated. And it, I think that the, the calories in calories out argument, the argument about, you know, maybe we're fat because we're couch potatoes and maybe we're fat because we overeat. I think those two ideas, it's not to say that they're without merit, but it's almost like people don't want to consider other arguments. Right. Like the fact that our engine is just like not burning hot enough or something like that. Right. Exactly. I'm making this very mechanistic argument. I'm like, look, our, our metabolism is, is broken. We've lost our top gear. And here's why, you know, a lot of people respond by just saying, well, I think we're lazy and we overeat. I mean, I think that is also the case. <laughs> the thing is, is like, that is also true, right? Well, maybe, but you have to think about like, okay, well maybe, you know, maybe one of the reasons why we're lazy is that our, our metabolisms are not functioning effectively. And, 
and we're not, you know, we're basically not efficient and we're not making ATP. And so we feel, you know, we don't have the energy. Like I've noticed when I switch to this diet, like I'm, I, I like to pace and think, but like when I go to this really high saturated fat diet, and especially if I'm using the SCD one inhibitor and like, I mean, I just have this like energy, like I can't, it almost makes me unproductive because I can't sit down in the morning. Like I get up and I just have this pacing energy. Like I can't stop. I have to go do something. Not the case when I'm just eating. I mean, I always do it to some extent, but when I eat on this high saturated fat diet, I feel this big surge in energy. And then I'm like, well, now I'm not lazy. I'm going to doing things. You know what I mean? So I, I think it all plays together. It's like, yeah, if you're, if you're, if your metabolic rate is low, yeah, you're probably going to be low energy. And, and yeah, why are we overeating? Well, it's because we're not generating ROS in our um, hypothalamus because our fat isn't saturated enough, you know? So it's like, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Like, right. Right. It's like all integrated. You can't, it's not so black and white. You can't just take one thing and look at it in a vacuum or whatever. Right. Exactly. And so like, what? so, and, and here's a good example, just to simplify that, like, okay, so, I can go to a restaurant if I'm hungry, I could go to a restaurant and I could eat platters and platters and platters of French fries, fried and vegetable oil. No problem. Eat them all day. If I make French fries at home fried in beet suet, which is what I fry them in, which is very saturated. I can't get through one platter of them. Like I'm done hard stop. And so yes, we're overeating, but it's part of the reason is that we're not eating foods designed to cause satiety. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, another question I have is, do you think, uh, when some people switch over diets, the reason they see such a, um, benefit from them is due to the fact that they're just eliminating a bunch of bullshit. Like for instance, you hear a lot of people with like the carnivore diet, right? They're like, Oh man, I just switched to meat and like, it's so good. Like it eliminated, you know, all this bloating and like I lost a bunch of weight and you know, I have more energy and all of this kind of shit. And it's like, well, yeah, not only did you just start eating meat, but you also stopped eating like dairy, you stopped eating like honey and shit. Like you stopped eating like everything else. And that's a good possibility that maybe you had an allergy to one of them or something like that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, no, I, I think that's true. And I think that is, I mean, I think that's actually the idea behind the carnivore diet it, in a lot of ways is it's a, it's, a, it's an extreme elimination diet. Um, right. I, like I, I'm actually friends with Amber O'Hearn, who's a supporter of the carnivore diet and she, so, you know, and she, her kind of classic line is I, I came to the carnivore diet for weight loss, but I stayed for the mental clarity because she's someone who has struggled her whole life with depression. And for some reason, when she switched to the carnivore diet, her depression went away. And so, you know, but yes, I think the reason for that absolutely is she was having some, uh, some reaction to some of the other foods that she was eating. And I don't, you know, I don't know that she's for her, it works she's sticking with it. You know what I mean? Um, if it was me, I would be like, well, let's figure out the specific things that are bothering me. Um, cause I'm a chef and I like cooking and I, I, you know, whatever I, I would be happy eating. Yeah. You're like the perfect combination of things to figure out that problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think so. And I think that's sort of why I'm, I guess that's why I've, I've gotten here is I'm like, not even though keto has worked for me, 
I like food too much and I, I'm just not that dogmatic. And I, I like having fun and eating new foods and trying things and cooking things and kind of a mad scientist. So I guess that's, yeah, why I haven't stuck as rigidly with like the keto diet or, and I'm also kind of like, you know, I'm now finding myself making an art, making arguments for, for pure starch based diets. Right. I'm, I'm interested in it. Which is like the opposite thing, right? Right. Like why do the, why can people be thin on keto and the Chinese can be thin just eating like 80, 90% of calories is white rice or, or sweet potatoes or wheat, depending on where you live in China. But you know, there's gotta be some unifying mechanisms that are making it all work because like a court compared to Americans, the Chinese are definitely overeating. And again, I'm going to reiterate the statement from the, the, um, you know, the Cornell study, which is the least active Chinese, i.e. probably, you know, retirees, um, et cetera, that aren't doing hard work, whatever, homebodies, the least active Chinese ate 30% more calories uh, than Americans and weighed 20% less, you know? So that's like, by American standards, uh, the Chinese, traditional Chinese overeat. And so, you know, how can you then come back to Americans and say, well, you're fat because you're overeating. It's like, well, what the starch eating people actually eat more than we do. Yeah. Just, just for the, um, I guess, uh, like sake of making this sort of an all inclusive one-stop shop for people who are listening. Um, can you explain how keto works just cause, uh, sure. I think a lot of people don't. Right. Yeah. So, so the keto diet is, um, is kind of the opposite of the Chinese diet. Uh, what you do is you, you simply restrict all, uh, carbohydrates. So you're not eating starch, you're not eating sugar. And so what happens in a, in a ketogenic diet. And, and the reason that I think that it works is that, um, when we make insulin, so insulin is a, insulin is the hormone that's released when we eat mostly when we eat carbohydrates. Um, it's also released when we eat protein, but, but to a lesser degree. And so what insulin does, insulin is the trigger that like, okay, we've eaten, we need to store some of this energy, right? Because if we didn't store any energy, we would die. And so the insulin has the, tells the fat cells to stop releasing fat to the rest of the body and just start storing fat as energy. Right. Um, you know, that's its job. And in a well-balanced metabolism, that works great. You know, you eat, you store some fat, and then you release the fat over the course of the day. And when you're not eating, you're, you're burning the fat back off and it, and it works pretty well. And so I think a lot of people, once your, once your metabolism gets kind of dysregulated, people start making too much insulin or they make more insulin than they, than they did before. And like in type two diabetics, your insulin goes very high. And so if that's the situation you're in, when you go to a ketogenic diet, suddenly you're producing a lot less insulin because you're not eating the carbohydrates. And so you basically are just going to, over the course of the day, you're going to produce way less insulin and you're never going to, you're never going to get back into that mode where you're storing fat instead of, instead of burning it. Right. And that sounds great. And the ketogenic diet is, has been really effective for a lot of people. It's helped a lot of people lose a lot of weight, um, help them get better blood glucose levels, 
you know, help reverse a lot of the, um, the, the effects of like type two diabetes, but just because keto helps doesn't like just because keto helps once your metabolism is screwed up doesn't mean that carbohydrates are the thing that broke your metabolism in the first place. And so, because if, if carbohydrates broke your metabolism in the first place, then, you know, we'd then the, the Chinese still eating a very traditional diet would be in really bad shape. But when you look at the China health study, that doesn't seem to be the case. And so, you know, uh, yeah. And so I, I think we need to start thinking about theories that can explain all of the different cases, right? Because to my knowledge, <laughs> I haven't seen anyone who has, you know, here's the question. Here's the big question. Why are uh, starch eating? Why do starch eating Chinese people eat tons of calories and remain lean? Um, why does keto help people who are overweight lose weight? Why were people living in New York City bankers with desk jobs in New York City eating starch and butter uh, thin? And then why did, why was that same banker, you know, 40, 50 years later, why did he then get fat? You know what I mean? Why did, why do people with desk jobs today get fat when those people with those same jobs 60 years ago probably didn't, um, you know, so you have to explain all of those scenarios. And I think that's, you know, the keto diet can't do that. The people, um, preaching like, I don't know, I'm going back a bit here, but, um, trying to think what the guy's name was, uh, there was a really popular diet book, in the nineties where he was preaching like almost basically like a zero fat, like basically like a Chinese style diet, like less than 10% of your calories is fat. And he was doing it for heart health and I'm bummed. I can't think of his name. Um, you know, but, but he, you know, that guy's theories couldn't explain keto or, and they couldn't explain the French either, you know? And so where we need some theories that can bridge the worlds. Right. And you think this saturated fat theory kind of bridges all of these I think it does. I think it does. I mean, the, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but, but at least, at least the theory attempts and I think does pretty well at potentially explaining all of the different scenarios and there's good, you know, scientific evidence for it, especially in rodent models, like in mice and rats, you can show pretty effectively that this is true. And not everyone believes that, you know, rodent models are, applicable to humans, I tend to think that they are. And I think that most of these mechanisms, you know, have been around for a billion years. Like I think the system, essentially we have all the same enzymes, we have the same hormones, we have the same things reacting the same way. So I think that in almost all animals, you can see, you know, I just wrote a paper about um, Native Americans used a lot of bear fat as a staple. The bears... <laughs> when they want to pack on fat in the fall, their fat becomes very unsaturated because, you know, they have to, they have to gain weight and they don't want to be doing uncoupling, which is inefficient. Um, right. They want to add fat. So they, they become very, very unsaturated and they become fat and then they hibernate. And over the course of the winter, 
their fat becomes much less saturated as they burn it off and burn it off and burn it off. Interestingly, the Native Americans almost always hunted the bear in the spring once their fat had resaturated, despite the fact that the bears had way less fat on them in the spring. So the Native Americans could have hunted the bear in the fall when they were at like 30% body fat and they were mostly after the fat, you know, that was their main thing. Um, but they didn't, they didn't hunt the bear when the bear were at 30% body fat and very unsaturated. They hunted the bear when they were only 15% body, uh, body fat and much more saturated. And so you see in all these cultures, you know, that people are, I give, uh, older cultures, a lot of credit. I think they're, they're actually, they're very savvy about their food choices. But they could, they also could have like stopped hunting cause it was like winter. Right. And it was just really cold. Well, no, no, they would start the hunt in like February. Right. Like when it was still February to start hunting the bears. So, you know, and just, and I'm trying to draw, like I say, I, I like food history. I like to draw these historical perspectives, but then also get down to the nitty gritty of like, what are the actual mechanisms by which these observations could be happening under the hood. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, I, I wanted to ask as well, why uh, why do you think that rodent models are like relevant? Because I, I mean, I would think that just like our systems are so much different and like a lot more complicated. So like how, how is it that you can like draw? So um, I mentioned before, if you take a C. elegans worm, it's a, it's a tiny nematode. It's, they're like, they're microscopic. They live in the dirt, right? This is like the furthest animal from us, right? That you could imagine. And if you remove the SCD1 gene out of that C. elegans, it becomes unable to store body fat. If you take a human heart cell and do the same thing, the same thing is true. Right. So you're saying like, you think this SCD1 mechanic is just like universally doing the same thing over animals, basically. Absolutely. It, it, it has the exact same effect in like human tissue culture cells as it does in this C. elegans worm as it does in the mouse. But it's not just the SCD1, like, you know, things like insulin work the same in C. elegans as it does in mice, as it does in humans, uncoupling proteins, the C. elegans has them, the mouse has them, we have them, and they all, they all work in the same pathways. You know, I think that all of these systems, you know, these are very complex systems, right? You've got, you've got the mitochondria doing its thing over here, and it's interacting with the nucleus, and, and they're going back and forth. And then, you know, it's not like the, and when I talk about like the hydrogen peroxide, right? It's not that um, hydrogen peroxide directly leads to mitochondrial uncoupling and a higher metabolic rate, uh, what actually happens is the hydrogen peroxide triggers this transcription factor, which is the thing that goes into the nucleus and turns on other, other, uh, other genes. And then the cell will respond, you know, how it's going to respond, uh, to the stimulus. But, you know, the C. elegans worm has that transcription factor too, as does the mouse, as do we. So these are like, deeply conserved systems. And of course, all organisms have evolved to be a little bit different. And like a good example of that, again, is hibernating organisms. So um, it's not as well studied in the bear, but um, I've been reading about this, this hamster that, that hibernates and um, 
in the winter, <laughs> when it wants to be really good storing calories, it's kind of weird. It, it hibernates by storing a catch of food and it actually gets lean before winter, but then it'll hibernate for like, I don't know, a week or two weeks or I don't know how long. And then it'll wake up and it'll feast and it'll store a bunch of fat and then it'll go back to sleep. <laughs> and so, um, so it spends like 90% of the winter hibernating and 10% of the winter feasting. What does it do before it wants to hibernate? Oh, it massively increases the amount of SCD one that it's making because that way when it wakes up, it's going to be really good at storing all of those calories that it's, you know, while it's feasting, it's going to be really good at storing fat calories so that it can then go back to sleep for. Right. It's almost like just everything that has evolved on earth has evolved to sort of like take nutrients out of the shit that exists here and like deal with the, you know, natural stuff like the cold and all that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But, but when you look at it, you know, we really all have the same, we really all have the same mechanisms. You know what I mean? It's, it's, um, it's, it's uncoupling protein and it's, um, it's SCD one and it's, the NRF2 transcription factor and, and insulin and, you know, the signaling networks are all pretty much the same. And so that's why I think that the road mon models are absolutely applicable. You know, you, you I mean, it's not, it's of course not 100% perfectly applicable. And there's of course huge differences between individual humans, just as there are huge difference between humans and mice in general, but that doesn't mean that, if we make some fundamental discovery in mice that that same mechanism isn't also acting in humans, you know, I'm, I'm not saying obviously we're not mice and you know, you can't do the same thing to humans that you can do to mice anyway. Um, Unless you're uh, that guy in the Minnesota. Uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. Unless you're Hansel keys, but um, and then apparently you can do whatever you, you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's amazing what the, the standards of research were a lot different back then. Um, but, um, but yeah, and, but I do think that, that the underlying mechanisms are conserved between species, I guess, is the end of that rant. Nice, man. Well, shit, we've been talking for a long time and I feel like, uh, my listeners will probably have had their brains well and truly exploded <laughs> by this point. Um, but man, I just want to thank you for your time. It's been awesome chatting with you. I've learned a ton, and uh, yeah, I, just, I find I find it really fascinating what you what you're doing. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. This is like probably uh, all of the other uh, shows I've been on are very you know like like and keto focused. So this is fun. It's a whole it's a it's a new audience. So hopefully yes. hopefully people will like it and not be too exploded. <laughs> yeah, if you listen to any one of, of my episodes, you'll see uh, the stuff I, I'm. So I'm an audio engineer by, like, that's my degree. Nice. And um, yeah, so I'm generally talking about audio engineering and electronic music stuff. But I'm, I'm also just like really fascinated with you know biology, physics, all that kind of stuff. Even though I'm not like super educated in these areas, I just I find it really, really uh, fascinating. So yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. All right, have a good one. All right, I'll see you on the flip side. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded by Robert Fumo. You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. I'm a lot of